welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast with John Cribbs and Chris Funderburg. Hey! Chris, how, how you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. Is this the third time we're recording this inexplicably? Go <laughs> into it, John. Third time we're doing this. This time we're going to get it right. Chris, we're going to be talking about William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. And just as a way of getting things started, what I kind of wanted to talk about first was sort of the re- reputation of this movie and of William Friedkin kind of towards the beginning of the century, like like around 2000. Because when I think back on this movie and my appreciation of this movie, what I have to think about is that he's had like a really cool kind of uh, renaissance. You know, he's had like a real good second act where a lot of the films that people hated, just flat out hated back in the day, are now kind of getting, you know, these getting, getting re-looked at and getting like a new sort of respect. And this is one of them. Do you remember anybody but us being fans of this movie like when we were in college like in the late 90s anyone outside of our circle my thought was, I was like, gonna say dave hastings right but... right other than people we knew it just had no reputation whatsoever did you have that kind of impression of this movie yes and it's it's actually i was just thinking about this because i was rereading reviews of this movie right before we went to record and it's amazing how many reviews very casually uh are like cruising sucks, sorcerer sucks, right? Yeah. Especially mm-hmm. cruising. Cruising is like an agreed upon worthless pile of trash that deserves to be flushed out of the cultural memory. They put it next to like deal of the century, right? Like in Ebert's review, he's like, it's not one of his bad ones like cruising or deal of the century. Century, And you're like, Jesus Christ, like surely you can see the difference between those two movies, even if you don't think cruising is good. And um I, I do remember that this movie, this movie, I was also thinking about how um, this is a favorite movie of me and you. This is one of our like shared favorites, similar to sort of how we did the high and low episode about one of our favorite movies. This is also, we're going to do an episode about one of our, our favorite movies, but I didn't like live with this movie my whole life there there's a strange sort of thing with Friedkin where I, I was thinking about like when did I turn the corner on him and that's even hard for me to remember um when I turned the corner myself on him because I had not liked when I was in high school and becoming a cinephile I had watched a few of the new Hollywood things that people were telling me were the greatest movies ever made, just absolutely peerless works of cinema. And I had not liked them. I'd been like, I actually don't think these are movies are as good as like the Fritz Lang and Kurosawa movies I was seeing simultaneously as like a budding cinephile. I was like, this, this is an outrage that they're putting some of these movies in the same breath with like Seven Samurai and Throne of Blood and M and Metropolis. Like this, this is actually offensive to me. And one of the big ones uh, was The French Connection, which I was like, this movie stinks. And it's like a lot of its police brutality is played for humor. And it was at an age when I really detested cops and I had really no sympathy for that movie whatsoever. And that was one of the big, like, new Hollywood fucking sucks. And I never liked The Exorcist either. Like, I think, like, a lot of people, um, possession movies don't do anything for me. I think for possession movies to be scary, you have to believe in the devil in some fundamental way. Otherwise, they seem sort of like 
silly. That movie just seems silly to me. The medical stuff in the first 20 minutes is very upsetting and terrifying. The rest of it, it's sort of like none of it bothers me even slightly. And so William Friedkin was one of the load stars alongside Coppola. Of yeah, you know, new- just though for me yeah. with Exorcist, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I'm not a huge fan of The Exorcist, never have been. Um, I, I do like you know parts of it, but overall, I'm not. It just does it never really worked for me. I, I always wondered though if it was a failing of my own in that I, The Exorcist is one of those films that got parodied. Yeah, just completely. You know, it, 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 anything from it that kind of like you know broke through for me for pop culturally, it was all the parodies and the kind of goofs on it. So I just re- like always thought it was like this girl with like a demonic face vomiting on somebody, her head spinning around was like, that's so silly. silly. It's so fucking goofy. I don't know. And the filmmaking did not blow me away in either of those movies. I didn't feel like, well, here's a great filmmaker the way I would with somebody like um, De Palma or Coppola that they're like overtly impressive filmmakers that Mm -hmm. I I didn't connect with at that time. Um, Same thing with me, the French Connection. And of course, I love Gene Hackman. I love Roy Scheider. I love Fernando Ray. Yeah, and I'm a freaking fan, and it just has always seemed weird. And I haven't had the big like revisit of that movie that I've been meaning to do over the last, you know, two decades. But it just it was a movie that didn't impress me necessarily. It's big chasing didn't impress me the way everyone said I should be impressed. It's weird. Absolutely not. The chasing is not phenomenal, and yeah. and it's even just from the era immediately, it's sort of like it's not as good as the one in Bullet, and it's not as good as the one in the Seven Ups. You know, like. Yeah. Very overt, like it's is it cracking top five best chase scenes? It's not as good as the bus chase in Badge Three Seventy Three, which is obviously aping it and trying to rip it off. Not to mention that since it's a guy in a car chasing a train, even when it was over, I didn't realize that was the chase that I was supposed to, you know, be impressed by. I was like, when's the chase between like two guys in cars? You know, yeah, like it's supposed to be a car chasing. So even that was confused to me. But I will say though, in, in high school, I did see Sorcerer. And I loved Sorcerer from the minute I saw it. I saw it before I saw Wages of Fear. And so the fact that Sorcerer was considered, especially after Biskin's book came out a few years later, was considered like the the falling point, you know, the the, the symbol of like all the ego and like the yeah, the, the hot shot cinematism. Yeah, that that Prince William Friedkin, you know, had totally blown his load on this failure and that Star Wars had come along and rightfully crushed it, you know, in the theater never made sense to me. I didn't understand it because I thought Sorcerer was incredible and loved it so much more than those other movies. Uh, So moving on, when everyone said Cruising, obviously terrible, and when To Live and Die in LA, never had any kind of reputation whatsoever, I was suspicious because I knew everyone said Sorcerer was bad. And I knew for a fact that was incorrect. So again, it's just kind of like crazy to have first seen uh, Sorcerer get, you know, a second chance and more people like coming out for it. And then to hear more people being huge fans of to live and die in LA and finally cruising even got, you know, all the accolades that, you know, it should have. Well, those are, those to me are the big three. And I think I have, I'm not sure what order I came to them in, but sorcerer to live and die in LA and cruising are fucking masterpieces. I think these are three of my very favorite films. I think they're great. I didn't see sorcerer until you and I on Alan Cordell's film shoot upstate, we, you went to a um, used video store and bought a copy 
of Sorcerer on VHS. And you also went to like a flea market or something and bought a tiny TV with a VHS player built into it. And we were staying in this house. Our friend Alan Cordell, who's a director, we were making a film with him upstate in these sort of like very... Uh, Spartan miserable conditions. We were staying in an empty house with sleeping bags on the floor is where we were staying during the shoot. And the second floor literally had nothing on it, but an empty room where we were all in sleeping bags and this TV you had bought that you and I sat on the floor during the shoot and watched Sorcerer on this tiny TV. And that was one of the real, like, I can't believe people don't understand this is a great movie. It's not better than Wages of Fear, which is one of the greatest movies ever made. And certainly that comparison doesn't help it. But I think that the opening 40 minutes of Sorcerer is better than anything in Wages of Fear. I'd go on record with saying that, you know, Um, and it's just a really phenomenal movie. And that's the first time I'd seen it. I think that I'd been so resistant to new Hollywood stuff that that was a turning point for me. And you and I had always, I remember in college, I had really like to live and die in LA. Um, and you had uh, turned me on to cruising. You were like, no, cruising is really, really great. And at that time, again, I was a sort of like good liberal who remembered cruising mainly as this was protested by gay rights group. This is clearly some kind of an anthem of film that I shouldn't like. And the turning point on cruising for me was we had um, Christine Vachon from Killer Films, producer of like happiness and uh, kids and any number of, of legendary independent films, who's also a lesbian, come in and talk about how um, much she liked cruising and how she understands why it was protested, but it's a really accurate picture of a time and a place in New York that's gone now and that she had a lot of affection for it as a movie and didn't think it was homophobic and in fact felt like it was uh, unusually perceptive and fair uh, about a, a very underground culture. Um, the way I and that of, was like, you know, oh, up I can myself. like cruising. <laughs> yeah, the way I kind of always yeah. summed it up myself for people who have that argument against it is it's his Jack the Ripper movie. He's recreating White Castle and kind of the debauchery, you know, and the way that it's always like shown, you know, these these prostitutes in, in White Castle. Um, just being like the, the the den of hell, basically. He's trying to create that in, uh, you know, the village in New York, you know, at that time. And ever, so everything is going to be like sleezed up to maximum and exploited to maximum, you know, uh, kind of effect. And so it's, you know, yeah, it's exploitative and whatever it's, it is, but it's just- But he was a, also- a thriller, He you know? was filming in real gay clubs and leather bars and filming mm-hmm. a real subculture, which was not really ever captured on film except by this movie in an in a almost documentary type way, the way he's using these clubs and these spaces. And it's really, it is, um, it is still a, a powerful movie in that way. It has the feeling of like living document- in a very strange way, in a way that a lot of New York in the 70s movies don't for me, where I watch a lot of like, uh, you know, eternal New York City night movies from the 70s. And they feel, I feel like I don't get a clear picture of what the city was actually like. Whereas when I Mm -hmm. do with cruising, it does feel like a real place, you know? Um, And it's, and it's the reason to explain the controversy for people who aren't familiar is it features a lot of, uh, gay club, S&M, leather, bondage, rough sex, right? And sort of 
depraved, perverted, awesome, wonderful, fun sex, right? Uh, and some negative, bad sex as well. Anchor shift sex. Yes. But um, but at the time, this is when the, where the gay rights movement was, is they didn't want to be thought of as freaks and weirdo perverts. They wanted to just be accepted as regular people. So this film that leans so heavily into like the like water sports leather daddy scene was like, this is going to hurt us. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not, but this is going to hurt our very fraught position in which we're still an incredibly imperiled minority group, despised minority group, persecuted minority group that's fighting for respectability. Everything just needs to be the boys in the band or don't make it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, like, uh, that's the name of that one, right? Yeah. Boys in the band. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, um, just, just have it be tasteful where we're all, you know, aspirational, sort of the, the same argument you see being made now a lot about de depictions of, um, outsider cultures. And I think, though, now with the retrospect of time, it captured something very vital, you know, and I've certainly mm -hmm. since, you know, spoken with with some of my older gay friends about like, oh, it is it does. It is a picture of New York that makes me nostalgic now, you know, that it, it <laughs> yeah. does have that that reputation. Um, but sort of those three coming together. Uh, I think were like what turned me around on Friedkin, but I can say you're definitely right in 2000 that to live and die in LA, uh, I think had no reputation whatsoever. I don't know what its reputation was, but it certainly had no reputation. What was your perception of it? Cause I have my thoughts of what it was, but I, I want to hear yours. Well, my, my thoughts on what the kind of popular opinion on it was, was that people seemed to kind of relegate it to like, other quote unquote washed up mavericks of the uh, new Hollywood were churning out at that time. I think about like Michael Cimino's movies from the eighties that nobody liked, you know, and are kind of these weird generic action yeah. thrillers. That only the people dragon like, or whatever. Yeah, the pe only people like Tarantino will occasionally pop up to be like, it's really good. You're like, it is not, it is not any good. <laughs> Your taste is consistently terrible. <laughs> Sorry, go on. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that people just kind of ignored it and kind of just treated it like it was a generic police year. Sort of the big thing was he had just made Deal of the Century, uh, which is obviously, you know, a huge flop and a, um, a bad attempt at comedy, you know. And for, for yeah, should be pointed out a genuinely terrible film. There's, yeah. there's no defending Deal of the Century. There's just and not. after that and cruising being, you know, such a notable um misfire for him he had to kind of the, the perception was he had to kind of get back to what he knew so he was going to make another the french connection he was going to go back to a cops and robbers story a gritty you know on the streets kind of crime uh thriller and that's sort of what he did with to live and die in la i don't think that's fair right off the bat i think to say that this has anything to do with french connection is a misconception you know i mean besides the obvious you know themes of cops and crooks being you know just you know, mirror opposites of each other and things like that. But this is completely its own thing. It's completely a new style. It is just immediately, just aesthetically such a unique film on its own that, you know, a lot of people, you know, compare it to Michael Mann's early work and the kind of the Miami Vice aesthetic that was around in the 80s. But I think it goes even further than that. I mean, Friedkin, number one, is somebody who has always had just amazing instincts in terms of who he's going to work with and who his collaborators are going to be. He's the kind of guy who, you know, walks into a church and sees Tangerine Dream performing a 
four hour concert and is like, I'm going to have these guys, you know, do my score for my movie. And I think him bringing Robbie Mueller over from, uh, from Europe to do this film after uh, Mueller had been doing, you know, the vendors movies was a great instinct. And Robbie Mueller's, uh, you know, lighting on this film is half of the movie. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a painting. It's absolutely gorgeous. Although I was thinking this is less lit than a lot of Robbie Mueller movies. This is much more. There are some scenes that are less lit. Yeah. But, but the moments that are very Rob Mueller I mean, are, are so Robbie Mueller. So Robbie Mueller, the like scene the strip club, the scrub, especially. Yeah. I loved reading about this and hearing how Friedkin was so on the fly with this movie in terms of, you know, having the small budget and just kind of wanted to kind of keep it as compressed as possible. How he would say things like, I'm not going to, you know, stage anything. If you, hey, if you move off camera, you're not in the movie. It's your own problem to the actors. And so Robbie Mueller had to kind of secretly go to William Peterson and the other actors and say, please just don't move past too far away from the, the cashier, you know, or else you're going to be out of frame. Like, just work with me here. <laughs> he kind of had to go behind Friedkin's back to make sure that he got what he needed because Friedkin was just on such a go, go, go kind of mentality making this movie. And it has like a go, go, go kind of uh, feel, this film, even yes. before it gets to its huge epic chase scene. You know, it just has like a real kind of rapid, sort of the word Friedkin uses is spontaneity and yeah. I think that this movie has an incredible spontaneity to it that's a good word absolutely um I was gonna say my I didn't mean to knock you off course there I just wanted to throw in the spontaneity comment I wanted you to you to keep going um but I was gonna say my perception of where this movie was I think is is informed by my own perception of it because I was thinking this is a movie I've loved this is a movie I've watched a ton I remember watching it with you in college and really enjoying this movie and like watching it multiple times like it's a movie we throw on to watch with us and our friends and I was trying to think when did I start thinking of it as a great movie because I'm not sure I did when we were just putting it on to watch because I'll tell you another movie that we would put on a lot to watch, maybe not me and you, but certainly that group of friends that I watched a ton was Heat by Michael Mann, which to this day, I don't think of as a great movie. I'm sorry, everybody. I just don't think of it as that great of a movie. It's a ton of fun, but I don't think of it as like great. Um, but definitely a, two interesting movies. I hadn't thought of it, but they're two interesting movies to kind of compare. Yes. Um, but this movie at some point, and especially watching this time, I just watched it. I watched it twice this week. I watched it again just before recording it, especially watching it this time. I was like, it, it would be impossible to make a better movie than this. I really felt like this is as good as filmmaking gets when I was watching it this time. Um, and it's a movie that's impact is built on me. I would say that it took me a while to come around to thinking of it as great though, for two reasons. One is that it is totally 80s in the way you're talking and especially it's marketing promotion. First off, there's the title, which is, it grows on you, but it's also absurd. It's like an awesome title, but it's silly the first time you hear it. You know what I mean? It's not like, that's awesome. You're like, what is this movie called? And when I was little, when I was in like fourth grade, there was a, a TV show, a, a TV channel in Philadelphia there where I was living that did a double feature of this movie with Bright Lights, Big City. So Bright Lights, Big City and To Live and Die in LA, they were advertising all week. And for years, I couldn't get those movies separated in my mind. And there is something like that is very bright lights, 
big city about just like the title and presentation and marketing of this movie. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. Michael J. Fox on Bolivian marching powder kind of feel to it. That is like quintessentially totally eighties. And then obviously the title credits are like super duper eighties in that way. So there was just something about the like, fundamental 80s-ness of it, although I don't think it's as huge as something like Bright Lights, Big City by any stretch of the imagination that was hard for me to get over with it. There's actually three things, I think, now that I'm thinking about it. The um, second one, which I still uh, is something that's hard to deal with, is Wang Chung, right? The score is done by Wang Chung. Uh, the music is by Wang Chung. There's Wang Chung songs all over it. We got Dance Hall Days, you know, coming through at one point. Wang this is Chung, not a problem for me, it's for the rest. Well, I'm, I, but I've got to explain. I don't know what the reputation is now, but certainly in the 90s into 2000, Wang Chung was as fucking whack as it got. Like there was no more whack of a band than Wang Chung. Like they went beyond like cheesy 80s stuff to like cheesy 80s, but it's lame. You know what I mean? There was just something about them that was getting Wang Chung tonight. Well, that's it's just the easiest joke. They were just the easiest punchline to everybody get Wang Chung tonight. And there was something it's really interesting. I think it's on the commentary track. Friedkin talks about like, he picked Wang Chung because someone had recommended them as like the hip new wave uh, scene that was happening in Los Angeles. And I was like, Jesus Christ. Like they are, I was watching music videos of their, theirs this week, kind of trying to get into the headspace. What they are is, is like the dumb LA music industry simp version of talking heads. They're just like the industry sellout lame like sit around with an A&R team trying to come up with hit singles version of the talking heads you know which now like that's actually pretty cool they're actually pretty cool (laughs) in a super it's weird it's weird because they are trying to be cool and they get part of the way there which I think hurts them more than overtly lame bands You know what I mean? That they get just like close enough towards being actually cool to get the real like cool hammer whacked down on them. You know what I mean? They get the the silver chair hit. You know what I mean? You do do get an amusement out of thinking of, you know, 50 year old William Friedkin, you know, coming out of a store in his like pink tuxedo (laughs) with like a piano tie and being like, this is what the kids are into these days uh, with Wang Chun being sort of the cube squared of the (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, the real world and the uh, music is not like gritty cop music it's weird score that has super grown on me but it is a weird i love score. the soundtrack i love, I love it. it but the first time you hear it you're not if you're not like this is awesome you're like this is cheese ball because wang chung is cheese ball but there's something now that i've spent more time in la and have grown to hate la with the burning hot passion of a thousand suns this movie's critique of LA, I think, is very subtly smart in that way. I think just even setting it at Christmas time, this is a story I always tell about hating Los Angeles is being out there around Thanksgiving time and just being like soaked with sweat and walking into a 7-Eleven where like a shirtless guy passes me and Frosty the Snowman was playing on the on the on the intercom in there. And I was just like, I could not hate this city more than I do. I hate everything about this. 
and setting this on like December 20th, I think is the first day and having it be like hot and dusty. I think there's a very intelligent critique in this movie of actually how terrible Los Angeles is and having a quintessentially terrible LA band like Wang Chung, just like a charisma free front man that somebody at a label decided can lead their singles and a bunch of studio musicians just like I don't, I don't even know what their backstory is i'm just assuming like that's how where they were packaged together just there it's so perfect for this and this kind of like the music that is clearly trying to be beverly hills copish in some way but completely failing to get there i don't know it feels like a good critique in some way this movie feels like so everything bad about los angeles mushed into one movie you know like yeah yeah. i want to speak to that but i know you have a third thing you wanted to bring up (laughs) the third thing is just it's hard to get over when i was a kid and i first saw this movie this movie is about two gritty tough as nails cops played by (laughs) the dad from fear and cousin ira from mad about you Right. And that's like what my reaction was, is like, that's the dad from fear. That's the one who, you know, Mark Wahlberg popped both his cherries. How am I supposed to take this guy seriously as a uh, now I fuck both your daughters? No, um, as as a as a bad as like a tough guy, you know, how am I supposed to think of him as like a gritty cop? He's like a, a very generic dad type. And then, you know, cousin Ira, like a sitcom actor. In the other like grizzled cop role, you know, was very, um, was very hard for me to take. And then on top of it, who's the sexy lesbian in this movie? Daphne from Frasier. Like (laughs) it was just like, it had, it had such a weird pedigree in that way that, that, that sort of, I think those three things unfairly, I should add, held it back in some way. And I think a lot of people, the eighties-ness of it and the Wang Chung, I think that that was like if you run your movie goofs podcast where you goof on bad movies this is just prime target you can load up all your wang chung jokes and put on your silly wilford brimley voices to talk about this film you know what i mean like it's just it's just so ripe for those kind of assaults that i think that i don't know i think that that they they worked on me you know like i was when i was coming from that 14 or 15 years old whenever I first saw it that kind of of mindset too yeah I I fortunately didn't watch Mad About You so that wasn't as big a deal for me (laughs) but I will say just to kind of launch from that the 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 casting in this movie these two main guys are great and I think work so well together dynamically when they're I just in that in the middle of that car scene where you see Chance the William Peterson character just like getting off on the you know on why going, do they going the wrong way why do they call him chance because his mom took one <laughs> see him see him get off on like the adrenaline of like going in the wrong way into traffic you know and being chased by these guys with guns and then in the back uh his partner um Lukovic being k- losing his fucking mind like looking yeah. like he's about to just melt into tears and like cry for his mom people make the just greatest mind uncomfortable noises in this movie like uh like when um Totoro's getting stabbed in the in the prison yard he makes great squealing sounds there's somebody who's early on getting beaten up and they make like ah, ooh, sound that are like horrible actual sounds of distress like yeah. the sounds of like distress accompanying like physical violence 
are amazing yeah, and in this sweaty, movie. Sweaty, looking amazing. sweaty and yeah. genuinely like beaten up and not having a good time. If you see any of the but uh, like footage pathetic. of this movie being made, yeah. but you know, you see like it's really Steve James throwing a Willem Dafoe around a room, throwing him into furniture and stuff. Like these guys were up for it, you know. Peterson, you know, wanted to do all the stunts. They were, you know, at the, the famous scene in the airport, the infamous scene where the airport told him, don't have him jump up on the divider. You can't do that. And he did it anyway. You know, yeah. I mean, you can just feel it, like that same adrenaline that Richard Chance has and like going out there and getting his Moby Dick, his, you know, his counterfeiter is the same kind of like obsession and like drive that William Peterson and the other actors brought into this production. Like they were ready to go for it. So and wait, wait. shows up in this movie. So take us through the plot of this movie. We've been we've been talking like everyone listening is an old seasoned expert in William Friedkin's Billy Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. Right. Take so the very the, the very simple setup is that we got two Treasury agents, right, who are chasing after this counterfeiter played by Willem Dafoe. His name is Rick Masters, and he's ungettable. You know, we're told like he just he had he knows all the tricks. Like one thing is, you know, um, the Treasury Department won't approve over $10,000 for a sting. So he always charges like more than $10,000. Like this is the simple way that he stays away from getting like ensnared by the treasury department. And at the beginning of the movie, uh, Jimmy Hart, Richard Chance's partner gets murdered uh, not far from Christmas day through two days away from retirement after he finds uh, master's printing, uh, printing Ret- building. Retiring on Christmas. What a way to go. <laughs> uh, and, and after that, Richard Chance is, just obsessed with bringing masters down. And so he has his new partner. He's going to take uh, him down and he doesn't give a shit how he does it. Doesn't give a shit how he does it. Tells John Vukovic, his new partner, you know, if you're in with me, like we're going to get masters and that's, that's all there is. And so that's what the movie's you about. You know what the, the problem is? Trying to take you know what the down. problem is? Vukovic isn't shit in the streets. He isn't. <laughs> his taste is in his ass. Uh, no, and that's 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 a bit the general setup. And throughout the whole thing, you know, they they eventually go undercover, and because they can't get this ten thousand dollars that they need, they basically have to sign up for uh, a heist, more or less. You know, they yeah. he has he has a, a woman named Ruth who is like his informant, but she's also on parole for some unspecified reason. So she's like under his thumb. Like he's basically he's basically using her for you know information and for sex and all other kind of tawdry stuff she tells him there's this bag man who's going to be coming in by train who's going to be carrying fifty thousand dollars in cash in a briefcase and so they decide they're gonna meet this guy at the train and, and take this money away from him since he's a criminal he's doing anyway. some kind of doing some kind of illegal diamond buy it's not right. clear he's a chinese businessman coming down from san francisco so they decide they're going to take this money and they're going to use that money to ensnare masters and finally arrest him and that does not go well. That kind of, you know, is the whole big center of the film, the big, huge piece where, you know, suddenly all these guys with guns show up, the bag man gets shot accidentally, and they're on the run going down like the LA basin and driving in front of a train. And then suddenly they're, you know, going into oncoming traffic. And it's just fantastic uh, 10, to, 10 to 15 minute chase sequence that is absolutely dynamite. In my opinion, the best chase scene ever recorded on film. Uh, and it's uh, either yeah. that or Sherlock Jr. for me. I think that those are the those are my two favorite chase, chase yes, scenes. That's that's totally reasonable. That's also a great scene as well. But that's that's your basic setup. And of course, Rick Masters is the great Willem Dafoe. All these guys, this is very early days for them. I think it's Peterson and Pankow's first starring roles in the film. 
Defoe had done a few small films and supporting parts in Totoro, but this is like kind of their first big thing. And then the next year, a bunch of these guys take off. You know, you get Manhunter, you get Platoon. A lot of these guys like become stars like the next year after this movie. Do and the biggest star for next year, Howard the Duck, Top Gun. Do you think that's <laughs> Tim Robbins in the bathroom early on when not. they're at the? I, 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 I had the same thought. Like, is that Tim Robbins? That lanky guy who sounds just like Tim Robbins? Uh, but... I just need to take a leak. How did you prove it's not? Is he credited as something else? I just couldn't prove that it was. Nobody has, you know. So Nobody we're talking about said, in the hey, airport, Tim Robbins, when William Peterson is chasing down John Turturro. John Turturro is a mule for Rick Masters. His character Cody is a mule for Rick Masters, and he's at the airport with a bunch of counterfeit bills. And Chance is chasing him down. Uh, there, he arrests him in the bathroom, and then a airport security comes in and points a gun at Chance, and then. Uh, uh, Chance's partner Vukovic comes in and points a gun at the airport security guard and then a guy walks in a tall lanky guy with glasses ambles up and says I just need to take a leak and then turns around and and leaves I swear to god it is it is Tim Robbins John and I discussed this we watched it over and over it's the year before he does Howard the Duck and uh and Top Gun so the timing is right for him to do like a little kind of bit part like that in in a film it just feels like independently uh, we both thought that's tim robbins but i watched it i, I went back once or twice and i don't think it's him and I, i've never heard him being in it however what year is tape heads it's 88 i, I will okay. say i love that moment i love that you know this intense arrest and then <laughs> peterson almost gets himself chance almost gets himself shot by you know a cop because you know he's slow in, in pulling out his badge and it's this really tense moment that's you know then this regular guy just kind of comes in and says oh sorry to interrupt guys i just need to use the bathroom it, it's great to have that kind of humanizing moment that you don't see in movies like this where, you know, normal people just kind of are in the background and you actually have like a guy interrupting it. Another scene that I love is where he and um, Vukovic are chasing these two guys. And one of the guys, <laughs> the, the guy that Vukovic is chasing just suddenly starts to slow down. And he's like, hey, why are you chasing me? Why are why you, you running? Because you're chasing me, man. <laughs> it's great. It's great. I don't know moment. anything about that. That's and such... speaking of speaking yeah. of people I who famous people who are in this movie that I didn't know until this time, do you know who it is who Chance tackles on the bridge in that scene? I can picture him. It's just some meathead. That's not Rowdy Roddy Piper, Cole, is it? Cole, man. That's is Gary it really? Cole. Holy it shit. I don't know where he prints. Nobody does know it. I swear to God, it's Gary Cole. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's amazing. That's beautiful. I did not realize that all these times watching it until this time. Speaking of actors in this movie and realizations, you know what I realized this time watching it is you got Dean Stockwell in this movie teaming mm -hmm. up with Robbie Mueller again, like months after they just made Paris, Texas. That's right. It's, uh, yeah, it was like he must have been sick of pointing a camera at that guy this year. <laughs> so sick of Dean Stockwell. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, it is. It is. You know, Robbie Mueller was not filming a bunch in, uh, in America at that point. So it is a kind of funny like, oh, he's with St Stockwell again. Those guys, they make movies together. They're super buddies. Stockwell, uh, you know, Stockwell and uh, Mueller. You know how it is. But yeah, what keeps you on the toes about this movie is that, you know, everyone is backstabbing each other in this film. Like every single character is playing their own game and setting somebody up or, you know, trying their own deal. And it's, you know, it's hard to keep up. I mean, there's so many things going on. And then uh, it becomes a movie about, you know, making, making terrible, fatal errors, you know, huge fuck-ups there are no less than 10 
fuck ups that almost lead to someone dying. And then at the end, two fuck ups that do lead to somebody dying. And it's just one after another. And it's another kind of thing that you don't usually see in action movies, even today, where it's like the heroes, I mean, obviously are corrupt in the first place, but like make mistakes and the, and the villains, even Rick masters, who is, you know, uh, depicted as this, you know, mastermind who is a printer, you know, prints this funny money, this is this artistic counterfeiter. He like blows, blows it. He loses the upper hand when he's got, you know, someone dead to rights it's yeah. moments like this that are like, you know, you kind of appreciate the title, like you either live or you die in LA. Like it's so easy to do one or the other because he's one slip up and that's it. And it leads to kind of the ultimate big twist, the ending that we'll get into, you know, but I, I love that about this they, film. They go to Antarctica together. <laughs> yes. No, it's, it's one of the great, nothing goes right for anybody movies. I, I'm hard pressed to think of even with masters, a single thing that goes exactly right from even when they get the drop on the hippie lawyer, he still almost l- gets loses, yeah. you know, yeah. even as Steve he's James and his crew get the upper hand on them. Yeah. It constantly happens. brutal, brutal violence in this movie too. This movie has amazing texture to it. You were talking about uh, that earlier. And that's, that's one of the things that watching at this time, this movie is full of cliches, the cop two days away from retirement who gets killed, the, policeman who's going over the edge and doesn't care what you know the sergeant tells him to do and you know getting over his head it's full of cliches i would say you don't walk away with this movie under the impression that the writer uh, gerald pitovich who's a former secret service agent himself is oh that's a great interesting writer with a real flair for um for uh uh re- realism or something like that yeah. it's not it's not like glitter dome you know, it's not it's not like that. In fact, the two other movies that he wrote, Boiling Point and The Sentinel, are even if you the Wesley Snipes movie and the Michael Douglas movie are as generic as movies could be. They literally could not be more generic. And one of our years in review, I make an extended joke about how The Sentinel is literally as generic a movie as it can be. And the textures that Friedkin draws up for this are very, very impressive very very they make the movie it's just all the texture that he's able to generate with it and the spontaneity of it and the violence in it is brutal there are multiple people who get shot in the face in this movie and even though it's not a complicated uh, effect it appears they just get like splattered with blood each time it feels incredibly brutal just this movie feels so brutal but you know when the big death, Peterson chance at the end when he gets shot in the head, he literally gets shot in the head with an actual gun that just has like a paintball coming out of it. The freak can pull the trigger himself. I'm kind of shocked that he wasn't seriously hurt when they did that because Jesus. that's literally what it was like a paintball out of a shotgun was literally what that was. It's so brutal. It's so brutal too. That like Mark, it leaves on his forehead. It's, it's really, uh, it's really rough stuff. This movie, yeah. it's really rough stuff. And like the stabbing, the like unsuccessful. So John Turturro's character, who's a mule, he goes to prison and uh, Rick Masters is worried he's going to turn state's evidence on him. So he hires Steve James's crew to go stab him to death in prison and they fuck it up. That's so brutal. And then the following scene where he's just drinking the Pepto-Bismol because he doesn't want the prison doctors operating on him. Just that follow-up of the long-term repercussions of that. Again, another fuck-up where Steve James is like, I can absolutely get to him in prison. And then they screw it up 
you know, yeah. and he's and that's a that's another fuck up in the movie. Um, but just those repercussions of the fuck ups are constantly and consistently felt throughout it's, this movie. And it's there's crazy like a, to think that this is a movie where a guy blows up in midair in the first five minutes and like half an hour later you've totally forgotten about it because so much more intense shit has happened since (laughs) that opening scene we should mention um i think is is interesting because i think it's it's the one part of the movie it's it's good there's things i like about that scene it's definitely a weird part that feels tacked on it definitely feels like this movie starts it does that sequence and then it starts again you know it definitely has that feel to it yeah um that sequence is just to show he's a secret service agent. He's a treasury department agent. So he does both protecting the president as in this opening scene from an Islamic terrorist who's going to blow up Reagan apparently, or uh, he's going to chase down counterfeit money. So those are, these are his two jobs. And it really feels like that scene is just there to be like, he's secret service. Isn't it weird that he is called on to do both of these things, you know, to, to hunt down, uh, fake credit cards and to to stop suicide bombers you know yeah that scene is the staging of that scene i think is what makes it weird too where his his partner comes up the side of the building and you're like where's he coming from but also when the body blows up it's a very strange cut like the body's just like floating in space in front of like the backdrop of la almost like stars so he falls off the side and then he's like suddenly it feels like he's up in the air in some way it's a strange cut but it's very weird I love I when they're sitting to when they establish they're... the relationship with Jimmy Hart. Otherwise, he's just giving them a fishing pole. Yes, and he's going off to die in a dumpster. When they're when know? they're sitting on the roof afterwards, and he cannot get his breath, and he's grabbing his arm. His the dialogue is all cliches, like I'm getting too old for this shit. But the way it's played is really intense, and really, mm-hmm. it has a naturalism and a texture to it that makes it fucking fantastic. You know, just that moment of him just like not being able to get over what just happened, not being able to immediately move on to it physically too. Like he can't catch his breath and his arm is bothering him, you know? So you get the sense that the explosion impacted him somehow, you know, it's just a great, it's great acting. It's great performance. It's shot great. And the way it's edited, which is just as a, as a, a static two shot, it's still, it all feels perfect. It just feels mm-hmm. perfect that moment. And I also love when he sees the, you know, just the guy down the hallway, the, the waiter walking too fast and that sets off his alarm bells. And then he goes to the tray and opens it. And there's no food on the tray. It's like great, simple detective work. You know, yeah, it, it has a good... It's a really cool scene in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah, establishes that he's got good instincts, you know? He knows what he's doing. He's good at his job. So, yeah, no, I I, I know exactly what you're saying and why a movie goof type podcast would probably pick up on that scene and just kind of goof off through the rest of the movie after it. But, uh, yeah, I agree that it still, it works in its own way, you know? It's, uh, it sets things up and, again, it kind of, kind of sets things off on that anything can happen craziness that it's just going to maintain throughout the entire movie. Yeah, I think that scene, though, as much as I like it and the final scene are the two weak points of the movie. And I think that it's unfortunate. I think again, if you're going to critique a movie, having your two weakest points be your opening and your final scene. So what people come in with to give them a first impression and then they, what could they go out on? You've, you've kind of, you're screwing yourself a little bit with that. Yeah. Yeah. But the end scene has such a weird element that we'll talk about when we, we get to that. Yeah. But you know, uh, Freakin has said, you know, that this movie is about 
counterfeiting, you know, not as yeah. not only about, you know, the actual counterfeiting of money that is the main crime in the movie, but that how his perception of LA is that everyone is counterfeit to some degree and that everyone is kind of, you know, put on this kind of fake front and you kind of get that throughout the movie, how every single character is kind of something that they're not, you know, trying to be something that they're not. And Vukovic obviously looking up to chance and trying to kind of become that kind of a badass cop that chance is becomes a huge part of it, you know, kind of has a lot to do with his actions towards the end. And it really, uh, has, a, it really comes out a lot in the Defoe scenes. The Defoe scenes are so interesting. They're so weird. I mean, they're great. We, they're we so both good. love, we both love the book Sideswipe, right. By Charles Williford. Yes. Uh, there's a great moment in that where, uh, this old man who has kind of gotten in with these amateur criminals who are going to like hold up this grocery store. Uh, and the old man, his entire life, he's um, been a painter of cars, right? Is that what he is? He, he details cars. And yes, he does. The, this, the yeah. like the like stripe down the side, you know, exactly. he's not like painting the whole thing. He does a specific stripe. Down Just the this side. straight line down a car, right. For whatever, for 30, 40 years of his life, that's all he's done. So he meets this young kid who's trying to be an artist and is clearly not very good. And he teaches him how to paint like a straight line. And it's this really involving scene yeah. that has nothing to do with the main plot, but is just such a beautiful little moment that I remember we always talk about. Uh, to me, watching Defoe do the actual counterfeiting in this movie is kind of like that scene. Like you're just sitting there enthralled by him in a, in a, in a building all by himself, this empty building where he's just doing the paint and, you know, copying the bills and doing throwing them in the laundry and everything. And you're just like, this is so interesting it's to amazing watch how he works the shot like where this. he blows on the 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 foil like the thin metal sheet and reveals the like latent image of the counterfeit money it's beautiful it's so beautiful. amazing that's the thing is that sequence is unforgettably classic if that was the only good thing in the movie it's good enough that you'd be like that movie is worth seeing you know if everything else was generic you'd be like there's the counterfeiting money sequence that's phenomenal yeah. You know, also, John, I just got to throw out John Frankensteiner made my favorite tweet of all time when uh, he he made a reference to that where he had Willem Dafoe blowing on the except it was the uh, the, the William Friedkin card from the blue chips trading card set <laughs> that I'd sent him as a gift. That was just a uh, that was a beautiful image that he created there. That's really made me, made me cry. Made me cry. I will say uh, Rick Masters is a great character too. He's like we mentioned, he's creates counterfeit money so that he can make art and pursue his career as an artist and then he burns his artworks when he's done with them he's sort of perpetually dissatisfied with the paintings he's doing his girlfriend is some kind of uh interpretive dance dancer she does some you know bullshit la you want to come to my dance quintet kind of thing you know <laughs> that's uh that's i'm sure it's fine it's completely fine i actually love shit like that i actually love going to those kind of dance performances uh, I really enjoy that kind of stuff. I don't know why I'm being so hard on it and why I'm trying to stake some blue collar populist position when I'm in fact the exact audience for like people in weird makeup going ooh, ooh, and like blurring around on each other and blurping instead of dancing. I am the audience. comes up to you and says, I got by the venue I wanted my cycle this weekend. You're going to come. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but Rick Masters, I think it's an interesting the portrayal of both an artist and a specific kind of LA artist. I'm always surprised by real fine artists to go to LA because it seems like such an overtly 
trashy, chintzy, fake place that if you're into the fine arts, it's always like, why would you want to be there? There's no real art made in Los Angeles whatsoever. It's all this like dumb garbage. Like if you're a graphic designer and want to make t-shirts or like a sneaker designer, by all means go to LA. But if you're like a fine artist like Rick Masters or an interpretive dancer, why the fuck would you ever want to be out there? You know, like this is, that's just like ground zero for misery. Um, but it is, but there are a lot of people out there like that. And there are a lot of like Rick Masters types out there that, that you sort of run into that people that are in the arts that have a really seedy, sleazy edge that you don't necessarily get in other places with people who are in the arts. The arts is, is somehow tied up with like all of the gross, you know, cause the drug dealers and the pimps and the, the prostitutes and the like, dancers all does get all wrapped up in the art world out there in a way that it doesn't um, as coherently in almost anywhere else I've ever been in the world, you know? And so I think that is, again, part of its critique of LA is like, man, the arts are so full of sleaze bags out here, you know, like genuine sleaze types. Yeah, but uh, genuinely interesting too. I mean, the cameo yeah. by Mark Gash, who's the actual artist who, you know, they mm -hmm. go to because he has some kind of a tie to masters or knows where one of his uh, buildings is. And you see his actual paintings on the yeah. wall and everything. And, you know, in the commentary, freaking just mentions how he's a big fan of Gash and, you know, bought tons of his um, paintings and everything. Like that's just another cool thing that, you know, freaking can throw in there is an actual interesting LA yeah. personality to kind of like yes. throw into there in the actual, from the actual art world. Although I think that art is garbage. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. This time watching it too, I was thinking this movie is very um, like Rick Masters. I feel like every artist, when they get older and get more realistic, you stop dreaming of being becoming like uh, Julian Schnabel or Damien Hurst and like the big shot ruling the art world. You're like, maybe I could become Rick Masters and like, make my money through illicit means and just make art that nobody sees that I destroy. I feel like that's the mature artist point of view is like, wow, that would really be the dream is just to be able to make my art that nobody cares about and have some fake job like counterfeiter to be able to fund it. You know, that's really, yeah. that's really the true dream of any artist is to be Rick Masters, not to be, you know, Andrew Wyeth, barf. <laughs> That's the weirdest thing about Rick Masters in this movie is that he constantly seems to be ahead of these guys. He constantly seems to know what's going on. He makes these allusions to like knowing that they, you know, were the ones who pulled the heist. And uh, at the end, he tells Vukovic he knew that he, you know, went to the lawyer, to Dean Stockwell to try to make a deal. He seems to be like 10 steps ahead of these guys, but he still kind of lets them do the deal and set him up, you know, and like let himself get ensnared it and it's such I think, a weird I think it's more, characterization it's interesting yes i think it's more that to he's still alive because he is 10 steps ahead but it's a job where you die you know like criminal is a job that you lose you know mm -hmm. and i think that that's what this movie is very much about is that like it's unsustainable to think you're going to beat the system consistently in that way and be a mastermind and win out 
at the end of the day. You know, just somebody's going to turn on you, even though nobody wants to be a snitch and nobody wants to turn on you. Somebody's going to turn on you. Something's not going to go your way. Something's going to fall wrong. You can take that. Everything's a chance, but the chance is going to go wrong. Chance is not always in your favor, just like the, the you know, uh, the, the coin flip is going to be tails sometime. That's just the way it is. So you can be 10 steps ahead. You can have the drop on everybody and still almost get killed. You know, yeah. that's, that's really the reality of being a criminal. And I feel like that's part of the texture of it is that it's, that it's self-immolating, you know, like yeah. it's going to burn itself up in that way. But yeah, that's well, the overall. has these clear, like suicidal ideations that are, you know, Whereas Chance, you know, will, will bungee jump off of the bill, the bridge and the, yeah. and the girl tells him, you know, if you were, if you had any real balls, you'd really jump off that bridge. You know, you don't really have a death wish, you know, the way that Rick Masters really has a death wish, you know, and really hopes to burn to death inside of his studio at some point. Yeah, well, I think he's the same way as as chance in that way. And I don't know if either one really has a death wish. I think they both like the illusion of mastery and that masters uh, is much more in touch with the illusion of it. That's why he burns his stuff that he Mm -hmm. lives in the same illusion of the mastery of death. Right. But he's like, this is an illusion and I need to remind myself of that. And that's why he tries to stay 10 steps ahead and in control at all times is because he has an awareness of how much more dangerous it is, you know, yeah, that he's not yeah. like, saying, like, I can do whatever I want. Like he would never say that, you know? Yeah. And having like some sort of control over like the chaotic life that he leaves. It's sort of a, he's like almost like a freak surrogate in a lot of ways. Like that shot where we're introduced to his girlfriend, where she walks into the room and they kiss. And it's clearly a man walking into the room, kissing yeah. him before it cuts to the opposite shot, opposite uh, angle. And we see that it's her you know, this idea that like this, this, like you said, this world of illusion that, you know, freaking is like having some kind of a control over is sort of what masters is wanted, wants to do it surrealistically as a character wants to have say over like the crazy shit that he has no control over of in this movie. Yes, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, this is one of the more interesting films about self-destruction because I don't self-destruction because I've, been a very self-destructive person in my life is an interesting theme to me always and sort of acceptance of failure and acceptance of destruction versus driving into it you know what i mean like accepting that we'll all die versus driving your truck off the cliff to get there quicker you know just sort of the tension between those two things and how a lot of self-destruction is almost like a feedback loop of like a hyper awareness that things are dangerous so you try and grab a hold of the danger and look it in the face and live close to the danger to master over it. But what you're actually doing is just making things more dangerous for yourself is definitely one of the, the themes of this movie uh, without question. That sort of self-destructiveness is tied to self-preservation. You know, I'm not yeah. sure anybody has a death wish in this movie I think they want to control their death wishes or want to control their fear of death. And I think that Chance in particular seems to believe that everything's going to work out right for him in the end. I think that he seems to feel like he's just going to go and do what he wants to do, right? Which he, I don't even know if it's about believing in the right thing. It's certainly not about believing in the law. That's one thing that we should mention about this is this movie, uh, the characters in this movie, the main characters, Chance, and then the lawyers have no interest in 
law and order or right and wrong. That's not what motivates them in any way. You know, that just doesn't even cross his mind when they accidentally get an FBI agent killed. (laughs) You know, chances like, what do you want me to do about it? You know, he's already dead. We got to move on. Whereas Vukovic, his journey is all about becoming like chance, you know, and sort of giving up on a, I believe in right and wrong. I believe that we have a way of doing these things and there's protocol to be followed and all of that. Whereas chance, I think is, is much more about ignoring that. And I think that's tied to him believing he's total mastery of the world around him. That sort of, you know, uh, Ubermensch philosophy of the total moral and philosophical mastery of reality around you, you know, that he yeah. really seems to believe in. Yeah, the only time he actually evokes the law is to get his way or to like exploit this poor woman who, you know, he's using for all kinds of horrible things to say, I'm going to, you know, revoke your parole if you don't do what I want you to do is, uh, well, it's not the way things should be. <laughs> yes. And when he goes to the judge and he's trying to get the warrant, right. And the judge wasn't, doesn't want to sign it for him. How he gets the judge to do it isn't appealing to his sense of law. It's appealing to the judge in a very basic way. Like you, if I was one of your cronies, you, yeah, if I was one of your cronies, you'd be spreading over bending over and spreading for me right now. Right. And that like gets on the judge's nerves, you know, and, and him coming be like, don't be a fucking pussy. Like do this. He killed my partner. Like, you know, uh, and that appeals to the judge. The judge is like, okay, I'll sign this shit now, you know? And, uh, and that's interesting as well as it's not even like, essentially when they're following the law, the judge is like, I can't sign this. You're asking me for legally erratic nonsense. You know, you wanted this guy, Cody held without bail, you know, and now you want to flip around and release him into your custody right? Like how, you know, that's legally incoherent, you know? And so he gets the judge to change his mind by not appealing to the law, but by appealing to some of the very basic emotions, you know, those sort of senses of honor and anger and fidelity that this movie plays into uh, in some way. Um, Another notable uh, face in the um, supporting cast is this guy Dwyer Brown who plays the doctor after Cody, um, double crosses Peterson at the hospital and, you know, beats him up and runs away and gets, gets away from him uh, is played by um, Dwyer Brown, who most people probably know as Kevin Costner's dad at the end of field of dreams, but is also the lead male in the guardian, the uh, oh my God. horror movie. So I just like to think that after they like wrapped the scene and shook hands, he was like, Hey, if you ever got like a tree worshiping Druid nanny thriller <laughs> that you need a guy to star in, I'm your guy. I don't. I bought a I bought a book about a nanny. But now that you say that, <laughs> maybe, maybe we can come up with something. You give um, me an idea. That's weird about him casting with doctors because you know in The Exorcist, the, right, uh, right, right, the right. male nurse, right? So he bought the rights for Cruising, which is about a series of uh, serial killer killing gay men in the uh, in the seventies. Uh, when Friedkin's making The Exorcist, there's a guy with a small bit part in that movie who was later revealed to have committed at least some of the cruising murders. So that's one of the interesting things about that movie. That's so crazy. It's so bizarre. Although that guy seems to have gotten railroaded. He definitely, they definitely at first tried to play it off like he committed all of the cruising murders. Case closed. And then you look at it, it seems like he probably killed this one theater critic definitely killed this one theater critic for sure maybe killed someone else it's he sort of got railroaded in that way but it is interesting that like 
at least one of the crude murders mentioned in cruising <laughs> this guy when freak can i believe freak can own the rights to it at that point although the rights to cruising were weird spielberg owned them for a long time which is right. crazy to think about like spielberg pre-jaws thinking of himself as like i'll make a movie like cruising that's the kind of director i am you know <laughs> yeah um interesting let's talk about the car chase well let's wait wait before we chase. get into the car chase okay we're talking about cody right okay. now mm-hmm. i have one cody question for you so you have that scene late in the movie where he's tracked cody down to his girlfriend's apartment his girlfriend is an actress he's seen the headshot of her he goes to sag and figures out where she lives cody is there hiding out so he grabs the girlfriend by the throat gets the jump drop on cody and gets cody right puts him in handcuffs, goes to Vukovic right. and says, right I have in the middle of, uh, of human bondage. <laughs> so he goes to Vukovic and he's like, now that I've got Cody, I've got the plan and we can do this. What part does Cody play in what this fucking Cody, plan? <laughs> what did Cody contribute? Yeah. What part does Cody play? Because I was... they've already been to the gym, which is where they're going to get the, where they're going to do the deal. Which, by the way, great bit of foreshadowing. I, I just noticed this time, which seems crazy. That I never noticed before. All the red towels draped around the lockers the first oh, time they're in the gym. Yeah. You know, it's going to be splattered with blood in the climax. But um, yeah, I, I had that same thought. What What is Cody bringing to the table here? They, because Vukovic already knows where the uh, extra building with the Chinese character is. That's how he finds that later on because he um, found I out have- through Mark Gash. So getting getting to Turo back, I think all he needs really is to turn him, take him back to jail so he doesn't get in trouble, right? I mean, it's sort of just like, well, wrap that up. But, but he says, no, he has him. a line that's like, now that we got Cody, that he, the final piece of the plan is in place. Like, Cody yeah. is going to do some <laughs> shit, and he does not. It feels like... Right, just, he says something to Cody, like, let's talk about where Master's building is or something. And it's like, you already know where he is. What's, what's going No, he, but he says to Vukovic, like, okay, we got him. We got it all set up. The dominoes are ready to fall. Yeah, I have no idea. It's obviously just tying up loose ends and it's yeah, satisfying. Yeah, I just kind of took it as like, you know, Chance has got two big problems right now. He's got to uh, get Cody back into custody before anyone finds out that he fucked that up. Yeah. And he's got to, you know, get this money to Masters and make this deal happen. And so once he gets Cody, he's I think he's just like, I'm on cloud nine, man. Let's do this. Nothing is going to go wrong with this Masters thing right now. It's crazy. So, Did you know that right now, John Turturro is directing a Cody movie sequel that's just about Cody, just about that character? Did you know that? Like he did with, no, with, the, with the Jesus, Jesus roles? You didn't see that? <laughs> no. It's called The Jesus. Sweet Life of Cody. There's no punchline, John. It was a bad. <laughs> it's weird that he made that, that Jesus roles movie, that weird very, Big Lebowski pseudo sequel. <laughs> And I'd prefer if he did it for Cody in this movie. Cody's a more interesting character than the Hazes. <laughs> yes, yes very, very interesting character. And of course, I love the line where uh, Masters, you know, quite ballsily comes to visit him, you know, in prison. And he says, I'm going to get you out of here. And I love you. And the check is in the mail. I promise not to come <laughs> in your mouth. Great Deturo okay. delivery. Man. I could love too. Deturo's fucking fantastic in it. He's great casting. His, uh, uh you got a lot of nerve showing you you got a lot of balls showing your ass here when he first shows up and you're like i wonder who it is because they don't show rick masters right away who's he who's he t- there's any number of characters he could be saying that too and also in the prison yard when he's realizing he's about to get stabbed and he sort of sees 
the flow of the prisoners sort of like schools of fishes moving around. And he's like, what's going down? And they're like, they're going to get somebody. He's like, who do you think it is? Hey, they're kind of moving this direction. Totoro's so phenomenally great in that scene. And you know, when one thing is, it's great. I love that yeah. scene. But the guy sitting with him, I can't tell if he's trying to help him or if he's in on the hit. No, he's trying to help him. That's okay. what I love about it. Is you think that guy's going to sell him out, and his friend gets up and starts beating up the other dude. He kind of kind of saves Totoro's life because yeah. that friend is like the savvy guy. It's it's because it's an overhead shot, and everyone's just kind of piling on top of him. So he gets up. He gets up. He gets up with Totoro and punches one of the assailants, okay, okay. like alongside right. Totoro. I think he throws the first punch. Actually, no, that's that 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 guy's great. That's like oh, that's his prison buddy. And yeah. I love in the next scene how Totoro's like, I'm not turning state's evidence. I won't do it. You know, I'm not, I'm not a snitch. I've taken four bids and they're like, they're going to try and kill you. And he's like, well, then they'll kill me, but I'm not going to turn over on anybody. Yeah, he's the anti-Vukovic. He's not going to, you know, betray his partner. You got to respect that. <laughs> um, does Vukovic ultimately betray the partner? Doesn't he not have the 50,000 to pay the to lawyer? He goes to Stockwell and tells him all about it. So, you know, but he doesn't Stock- go through with it, but it just yeah. seems like he's definitely thinking about it. You know? It seems like if he had the 50,000, he would go through with it. Yeah, yeah. Instead of a 30 of it being with uh, Chance and 20 of it being with the informant. Mm-hmm. Car chase. Do it. Let's it's talk great. about it. It's great. So if we haven't explained this uh, very well, he gets the information from his informant, uh, from Ruth, that this guy is going to be coming in by train. He's going to have this money. He suspects that she maybe has like, you know, been kind of, putting this out there to people to try to make this heist happen so she can get a, you know, a little bit of it. But she claims, no, no, I just told you. So they get a car from the motor pool. It's actually like a company car and uh, go to the train station. They grab this guy, they take him down under a bridge. And, and another great sequence that I, I loved hearing about this. I hadn't heard this before, but like uh, the money was supposed to be in the briefcase and he wanted to do a shot of Peterson, just hitting it against the side of the bridge. And he hit it so hard and freaking just didn't call cut. You see, he just kept doing it and finally it flung open. And that's why the 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 um the phone, uh, book. phone book falls out of it. And he had to run with it. He had to be like, what the fuck is this? And get in the guy's face. And that's all improvised. And they had yeah. to like create this thing where he's got the money on his purse. He's got it, you know, in the kind of belt strap across him. Uh, I love that that kind of just is something that happened while they were filming the movie. But anyway, so this guy... So they got the guy, they got the money, and then suddenly these guys start shooting at them from the overpass, and they accidentally shoot the uh, the bag man. A they great the moment because they've going. stopped the 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 shooters have stopped on a bridge, and their oh, car yes, gets yes. run into right as they're starting to shoot. So right as he's getting right aim, he hears his car getting hit, and he actually shoots the businessman, which later on will be revealed to be they're all. Enough. Yeah, they're yeah. all FBI agents. So he's just shot an undercover FBI agent with each That's other. That's what's so great about this scene is that you don't know what's going on yet. So they keep losing these guys. Like they literally drive in front of a train, which is just another one of those moments where you're like, you can see as many fucking dragons and ninjas into your big, you know, Hollywood movie these days, guys. But that car really drove in front of that train and there's no denying it. And it's so fucking amazing. Um, but they keep losing these guys and these guys keep appearing no matter where they go. There are like suddenly just guys with like, you know, giant it's, machine guns shooting at them, just popping up out of nowhere. It's very, very Grand Theft Auto. It's very, very Grand Theft Auto <laughs> it five. Is, it is. When it is when you get to like that star level when everyone is after <laughs> yeah. you, and there's just nowhere to go. Uh, and they literally shout out, where the fuck are these guys coming from? Like, who are these guys? 
they have no idea what's going on. They have no idea that they're feds and that they've all been tailing this guy. Um, and so, like I said, they have this moment in the, in the, um, the basin, in the dry riverbed where they're driving through. It looks amazing. Uh, and then they uh, have same, to drive Same into... location from the great sequence in Point Blank, another great yes, LA crime yes, movie. Yes. Absolutely. That's, you always use the LA basin for a great scene, whether it's Point Blank or um, Buckaroo Bonsai. Anyway, <laughs> they... They drive into oncoming traffic and it's this amazing kind of insular moment where, you know, freaking like cuts to the, like cuts out all the audio except for like Chance's hard breathing and Vukovic is sobbing in the back of the car. Uh, they're inside of this uh, hydraulic swivel car, which is, you know, it's just obviously you know being towed and kind of going back and forth. And it looks amazing. Like you'd never think like this is just a special effect. It just looks perfect. It's totally seamless, I think. And, uh, just an amazing sequence where they're driving. It took like a month to film this scene yeah. uh, of them. And, and again, this is kind of in three parts where they're kind of initially getting away from them and then they're in the riverbed and then they're going against traffic on the main highway. And it's just a pulse pounding, just totally cinematic sequence that you just don't get in movies. And it's just, I love it so much. Yeah, it's great. There's also um, the filming of it is really interesting. Uh, David Lambert, who's a, uh, uh, somebody we're friendly with on Twitter posted a, a clip of um, the Bud Smith of the special effects coordinator talking about with that train sequence when they're cutting by the train. One of the tricks they use is you film a train in a car in a wide shot driving next to each other. Right. And then when you cut to the close up, you have the car not moving but the train going in, it makes it look like the train is going twice as fast and the car is going twice as fast. I call this the twerps maneuver. You film a stationary car with the sound effect and it makes it seem like it's moving. Um, and, and it really works. And there's all of those kind of tricks just work perfectly in this sequence uh, as opposed is to- again, In Hollywood is the twerps maneuver? Is that the, in, <laughs> is that the industry term? It, I mean, I don't know if they don't use it that way. I'm going to- spank him and that's a hell of a way to spank a guy for wanting more conventional way to roast his weenies so we um all of that there's also in the sequence he uses that same low front mounted camera from the french connection that made famous where the camera's sort of like it's pointed upwards a little bit it's not pointed down to the ground but it's very low when he's sort of weaving in and outside of a bunch of stevedores loading and unloading trucks and you get that sort of like every trick you have to film a uh, driving sequence on this uh, thing is is used. One thing watching it this time that I don't understand why they did, and I was wondering if you have an explanation, the either the film or the um, where they are is flipped because they're driving on the wrong side of the road, yes, but the traffic flow is wrong. The traffic is flowing in the wrong direction when they're going up. You know what I mean? Like they're mm -hmm. on the right-hand side of the road, uh, it's hard to explain without going it, but the either the film was flipped or they flipped the way this is being filmed for some reason for a couple shots. I think that they did flip the film for a few of the shots. So that probably explains that. Yeah. And, um, but it's just like, unlike French connection, which I feel like is basically shot in a fairly standard way. This sequence uses like every single trick there is that the filmmaking on this sequence is just every kind of shot you could have in a car chase is in this car chase, yeah. you know, like every kind of an escalation of it. And it has such distinct sequences to it and keeps getting worse for them and has different parts to it. Like all great extended action scenes, 
it's not just at one level of uninterrupted, pure pumping adrenaline. It's up and it's down. It has movements like a piece of music. It has different rhythms, you know, where it's, you know, Allegro and then Largo, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it just, it moves around. It hits different notes. It's just so incredibly well-directed and put together. It's really fucking great incredible sequence that the first time you watch it you do have a like i have no idea what's going to happen feeling too and i have no idea what's going on where you're sort of like this is this just a cheap intensifier where for some reason the bad guys are just you know so multiple that you know that there's no escaping that doesn't feel like great and then you have a line of like where are they all coming from to try and paper it over and you realize no there is an explanation. It's a sting operation that they've stumbled into and have only gotten away by sheer luck. Um, and then the shot when it's over, when they've pulled the car over to sort of an empty lot and Chance jumps up on the trunk and is kicking in the back windshield and talking about, we lucked out. All we got to do is replace the back windshield before we take it back to the motor pool. And there's these three black guys sort of like dancing down the street with like a boombox yes. and a drum. Love and like box. and like the most Robbie Mueller setting sun <laughs> like landscape. It's just like, this is, this is your capstone to a great sequence is this unbelievably interesting shot, you know? Um, it's just so phenomenal. It's so phenomenal. This movie cooks. This movie moves from the beginning. Um, it doesn't, it's never hyperactive. It's not like quick cutting. It's not trying to be fast paced. And there's definitely different rhythms within scenes. Like some scenes move very slowly, like in terms of the actors moving within them, the stillness of it, the stillness of the camera movement, Uh, the quiet in them, but plot wise, it just cooks. It just moves. And it's, it's one of those things where I'm tempted to say like, there's no fat on this movie, but more what it is, is this movie is all fat. You know what I mean? This movie is like all, um, it's it's cooking the fat. Yeah. It's just like all it's removed from serious, story and subplots and big emotions and philosophy it it doesn't want to be any of that it has like a dime store genre novels approach to story and plot it's just rendered with so much texture and intelligence and realism that it begins to take on a weight and a heaviness and a meaning beyond uh beyond that but it has a total dedication to just being the this is not it's like not a steak dinner. It's like ice cream. You know what I mean? Or gelato or something, you know, there's something about it. That's like, it just, it just from the very beginning, just cooks. It's just so well put together. There's actually a Spielberg quote. I think about a lot with um, crystal skull. He's talking about making that movie. And somebody was talking about asking him about how Michael Bay shoots and cuts films. And he has the, the line that, Uh, If you construct, I'm paraphrasing, the narrative engine correctly, you don't need to cut fast because the story feels like it's moving, right? And that is this movie to a T. Whereas Mm. if you construct the narrative engine correctly, it just feels like it's moving regardless of how you've shot it. And there's more space to do other things within it. Maybe it's not all fat. Maybe this movie is just like a three course meal just being served continuously to you. I don't have a great food <laughs> it's metaphor. It's just a buffet, for man. It's just an awesome buffet. 
<laughs> yes, it's a smorgasbord. No, it's not like that because it's very modest and streamlined and direct. You know, mm -hmm. there's something about this. This movie, maybe the closest metaphor is this movie is like a cigarette. You know, I feel like this movie is like smoking a cigarette is what this movie is like. Explain. I don't know, just like a direct, simple action that takes a lot of time to go through. And that's like a heavy, weighty action to actually do. Like there's something profound about smoking a cigarette, even as it's an empty light gesture that you'll do repeatedly throughout the day. You know, Something that seems like it takes a lot of thought, but you're not thinking about it while you're actually doing it. It's something that's both profound and inconsequential simultaneously, okay. you know? I and like I that. think that that, cigarettes are attached to like philosophizing and reading and sitting around thinking uh but they're also completely meaningless thing to do there's like no pleasure from a cigarette that's not attached to other things like having a drink or a cup of coffee with it or reading a book or sitting and thinking right and i think that there's something about that like it's both very profound and very inconsequential something that's like very heavy and fills you up but is also complete smoke you know, that, yeah. that that's a what gesture too. That's both cheap and rich at the same time. In a lot yeah. Of yes. Yeah. yeah. Both fancy and low class, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah with, with uh, Mueller bringing in the, the beautiful flare of the, uh, <laughs> the, the fire. The yeah, exactly. Fire. Exactly. It has that, the, the, <laughs> there's something like beautiful and trashy with it. You know, if there, if this, I just, I fucking love this movie, John. Did we watch it? I feel like you told me to watch this movie or you and Hastings together being into it is why I saw it. Do you remember introducing me to it? Cause I, 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 I probably had seen it in high school and it didn't impact me. I definitely associate it with our college years. Through, you probably came through it through one of us because I mean, we would just throw lines from this movie back and forth, you know, across the way all the time. I mean, Dave was a funny guy. I feel like I can go ahead. I feel like I'm safe to tell this story now where <laughs> the best video store near us was across the river, across the tap, the formerly known as Tappan Zee bridge. That's what uh, it'll always be known because Rick's, we're not, because we don't acknowledge nepotist pieces of shit. <laughs> All right. It'll always be I'm with that. Rick's Rick's Piermont video, right? Piermont. And they had to live and die in LA. And I guess Dave Hastings didn't have an extra VCR or something. He couldn't just make a copy of it. So he would rent this. He would drive all the way out there to rent this movie again and again, like at least three or four times ended up like driving over there to get it. And eventually, I don't know if he actually lost it or just decided that he could be bothered to drive it back again, but he didn't return it, which was very awkward for me. Because anytime I'd go to Rick's Piermont, they recognize me as that guy's friend. And we'd be yeah. like, hey, hey, tell your friend to return that movie. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't really see him that much these days, but uh, I see <laughs> I, him all, uh, all I, I, on, all, I only all, see all him now. every single day. I only see him <laughs> constantly. I only see that. So like I formally apologize to Rick's Piermont video for my. <laughs> my uh complicitness in that rick's, but, uh, rick's Piermont is of course where we rented the 15 tape berlin alexander platz correction and watched it for the first time of course amsterdam so many classics came from rick's um yeah so so i don't know how you came upon it but it's i'm glad 
we saw it. I'm glad we watched Sorcerer together on Alan Shoot and that we watched Fierce City, that uh, great Ferrer movie that neither <laughs> of us had seen up to that point. It's another one I remember watching on that little TV. Um, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Again, at the time, it was just, just nuts to me that everyone considered Friedkin done after The Exorcist, you know, that it just that this movie was just left out in the cold and that nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to run a print of it to finally see it on the big screen, you know, was just amazing. Just incredible. Yeah. This is a movie that needs to be seen on the big screen. It's so it is, beautiful. I mean, after the exorcist, his, his career does get strange, you know, those three sorcerer cruising to live and die in LA that I think are my three favorite movies of new Hollywood. And I think that are, are sort of an unquestionable testament to his talent that he wouldn't need anything else. Uh, but those, uh, to be considered one of the all time great directors. Um, those are all movies that do need sort of rescuing in some way. They're all movies that do sort of come with provisos of like, okay, put wages of fear away. Okay. Understand that this movie isn't homophobic and this is not 80s cheese ball. They do all sort of have weird provisos to them and sprinkled in and out at, at the same time he's doing this. We have Deal of the Century, which we mentioned, which is awful. Also The Brink's Job, which is not a good movie. It's a very strangely flat and lifeless movie. Uh, it's hard to tell what he wanted to accomplish with that film. But if you wanted to say William Friedkin is not a good director, you could point at Brink's Job and be like, whatever magic he had on other stuff, it's just he's unable to have it there. And then he falls to live and die in LA with the movie that's weirdly somehow his comeback, which was Rampage, right? Which is the um, the movie that is about the, the uh, fictionalization of the uh, vampire of LA, right? Of the um, uh, Richard Chase, you know, this actual child murderer, the main character. And it's this sort of... Um, uh, fictionalization of that that somehow like revived his career a little bit you know uh, it's it's was a disaster but it also like um, d- somehow like showed he could still do it it's a really weird movie and in, in terms of, of terms of his career and a movie that he was championing really late he was like arguing for like the director's cut of it like one of his he still might have that be one of his deals that he's arguing for and then he just after that, it's very hard to um, argue like Guardian, Blue Chips, Jade, Rules of Engagement that, oh, hey, here's one of the all-time greats as much as, you know, some of those movies are likable, you know? So it is, it is you can't question that it's a spotty career full of strange decisions, full of uh, things that don't work, full of evidence that maybe he's not that talented combined with like enduring knock you on your ass masterpieces you know it is it is a strange career in that way and then the last you know then when he comes back in my mind with bug and um and killer joe which are two movies that i think are really phenomenal i think that that weird capstone to his career sort of confirms that he's actually great that he's able to make these two very strange great movies with almost no money late in his career. Cause generally mm-hmm. what happens when great directors do that, like we're going to do the downscale, no money movies based on interesting art where they're terrible. It's the worst part of their career. You know, that, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. You've watched Cronenberg's last few movies. Um, and uh, you know, cause those are the weird movies he's finally done. No, um, but, but you know how like 
great directors that sort of like were running out of money capstones are generally dispiriting. And for him to have done some of his most interesting artworks, I think is, is interesting uh, or, yeah. as, or as proof of something. That's a better, that's what I'm looking for with that. Yeah. He's a hard guy to pin down in a lot of ways. You know, it's when you think about like what works about Sorcerer compared to what works about To Live and Die in LA, they seem totally separate from each other. It seems like with To Live and Die in LA, it feels you know, the stories from the set and just the way that the movie came out, you get the impression of like a guy who just jumped out of a van going downhill and somehow (laughs) managed to stay up, you know, even though he's running just full blast all the way down the hill and survives it. There's a lot of, you know, uh, chance in him and and, in in like the the way that he approached this is a lot of jumping off the bridge and just hoping that, you know, you, you don't hit the bottom of it. And that's not sorcerer at all. Sorcerer feels like a movie that is so well thought out. It's just like every shot so beautifully constructed and just a production that is so lovingly and patiently mounted is not the impression you get from To Live and Die in LA. And these are two phenomenal movies, but you know, it's hard to like put them next to each other and say, I can see why the guy who made Sorcerer <laughs> could make To Live and Die in LA a great movie. It's, it's weird, is it? but you know, that chase sequence, you just think about it and you think this is a master filmmaker doing this. Like nobody could make this if they didn't know exactly how to make a movie. The whole film, I was thinking yeah. that this time, the whole film, yeah. I was thinking yeah. that this time is just, this is, this is even when I talked about sort of the weak points, those sort of need to exist and I'm hard pressed to improve upon them. You know, that's even if not everything is nonstop highlights. I think I couldn't improve this for what it wants to be and what it's doing and what it accomplishes. It's, it's very hard to think of how um, it would improve it. And he's a director that I, I also have to admit that like, the, uh, he's a director that I have to admit that I, I like from when I met him, when I was programming the movie theater and we did a screening of uh, Killer Joe and I was like ushering him around for the Q&A type stuff and I got to spend a little time with him and talk to him and he's just he's so unbelievably charming and so unbelievably just somebody that just like okay I'm an alkalite now it's like when I met Abel Ferrar like okay I'm completely whatever my misgivings were I'm a soldier on this person's behalf just great stuff like when he uh, took out his wallet he had to take out he had to give somebody a couple bucks and he took out his wallet and he opened it and it was packed with money there must have been three thousand dollars jammed into this fucking wallet white thickest wallet i've ever seen just jam packed with hundred dollar bills and he saw my eyes like sort of bug out a little he goes come on i'm freaking you wouldn't want it to have only 20 bucks in there (laughs) that's great yeah and uh uh, yeah and i was like yeah you're absolutely right this is that's what i hope to see in there he's like wearing snakeskin boots and shit he was just like completely charming he wasn't that tall which is notable because every director is tall except for him and ryan johnson they're the two not tall ones (laughs) and uh and he was just he was dynamite he was just pure dynamite in a in a very charming way and in a way that i believed his bullshit you know i i was just completely ready to buy in to to everything he wanted to sell and so i feel that now when I watch the movies, like I'm bought in on that guy. And I wonder if a lot of his career was that because he, uh, I sort of file him away a little bit differently than some of the other new Hollywood guys where 
most of those guys came out of the gate fairly strong, unlike their second or third movie was like a big time masterpiece that blew them up. And he was around making TV films and documentaries and made some unsuccessful films before he got leaped up to iconic Hurricane Billy status with his stuff. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, before we uh, wrap things up, you told me you're going to explain this receipt I found in my copy of the book, Hurricane Billy. <laughs> so explain what you found real quick. All right, so, real quick. so I popped open my copy of the biography Hurricane Billy, which was came out right after Rampage was made, I think. It's not a new book, um, but I've had it for a while. And I haven't, I guess I haven't looked at it for a while because I found this receipt from a Japanese restaurant from September, late September of 2001 with your signature on it for sushi. Yeah. And so I texted you. Two weeks after September 11th, a Japanese restaurant on First Avenue. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I texted you. I said, so did you borrow this book from me at some point and read it in a Japanese restaurant two weeks after 9-11? What's the story here? I did borrow that book from you. I was not eating in that Japanese restaurant. That Japanese restaurant was uh, our you were never friends with them. A guy I was friends with in college named Peter Gellis, who since passed away of a heroin overdose, called me one day when I was driving on my cell phone and said, Chris, um, I'm out on a date. I took this woman out to a Japanese restaurant and I, uh, I don't actually have any money to pay for the date. Can you come to the restaurant and pay for this meal that I've just taken this woman out for? It was like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, Chris, just do this for me. Okay. He's like, where are you? And I was actually near you because you worked at St. Mark's bookshop and this restaurant was over near where the old Kim's video was the like, uh, I think second Avenue Kim's. And, and so I was like borrowing this book from you when he called to ask for this, like two weeks after September 11th, like the city was still basically shut down. And I was like, I'm like seeing Johnny's like, that's like three blocks away. Just come over here and do this. And so I went over there to go do this. And when I went to show up, he's like, okay, but don't walk up to the table. Like when you walk in the restaurant, pretend like you don't know us and just walk back into the bathroom to get, uh, to do, to do this. And I'll come back and meet you in the, in the bathroom. I'm calling you from the payphone here. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. And so I walked into the back and when I got in, I was like, I don't have any cash. I'm not William Friedkin with a wallet full of cash. I was like, I can't, I can't give you cash. I only have my credit card. I have to put it on my credit card. If you want to pay for this, uh, if you want me to pay for it. And he was like, well, don't come up to the table. Can you give me the credit card to do it? I was like, okay, take my credit card. And they immediately asked for ID, right? And he, and he didn't have ID. And so I'm standing in the back by the bathroom, by like the pay phone. And he comes back and he's like, um... I just had to tell them what's going on. So can you come out and pay this credit card? Otherwise they're going to call the police on me. And so while he's in front of this woman on this date, this fucking scumbag liar, I'm like filling out the credit card thing. And I took it. And I remember I took the, because he was like, uh, they were like, do you need the receipt? And I specifically remember being like, yes, like angrily, like this receipt's going to prove something at some point, you know, like, tax deductible take them to court i don't know what this is going to fucking be and i put it in the book and forgot about it but that's what that receipt is from in hurricane billy and then i read that book that's great uh wasn't peter also the one who totally slept through 9-11 yes two weeks earlier (laughs) yes peter is the one who got up on 9-11 at about 11 a.m he lived alone he was uh not not one he didn't have a tv in his house 
got up and went down to uh, the newsstand to buy a newspaper and it was closed. He was like, huh, it's kind of weird. He got up and went and made lunch and, you know, made ramen with an egg in it and sat this around his apartment. Right? No, this is in Forest Hills, Queens. He lived. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so he was not very close to, he's in Forest right. Hills, Queens. And uh, gets up and goes and, and does that. And he reads a little. I remember he was reading House of Leaves at the time is what he was reading. <laughs> and, uh, and then he watched Shrek because he only had one DVD, which was of Shrek. And he would watch it all the time. And one of the weirdest fucking things in the world, he watched Shrek. And then as he was going to bed at like, or no, he went to bed. And then the next morning I finally called and got through to him. And was like, where have you been? What's been going on? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? September 11th just happened. It won't be known as that yet, only in the future. And he just he just did his day and was living in New York and didn't know September 11th happened. Amazing. Yeah. And, and I'm surprised I didn't remember the Shrek uh, part of the story since Will Smith and I, I am legend as his fixation with the movie Shrek. And that's the closest to an actual Armageddon we've lived through is 9-11. You were sitting there like, oh, Willie Smith. You would go over Shrek to his, his house to, to get him to leave. And uh, this is the thing. None of this, all of this seems like he's like a slovenly dork idiot. But this guy pretended to be the slickest, most sophisticated guy in the world. He's somebody who really was like, presented himself as real sophisticate which is what makes all of this funny he was he was really one of the true con artists and criminals i've ever <laughs> known in my life and just would you know he was a guy real, who was will very can type character no no zero percent you know nothing about the cinema we got thrown out of a party once a rap party of a movie he had gotten fired from he was a producer on and the director was a french guy yelled at us as we were walking out you know nothing about the cinema after peter's you know nothing about the cinema so i think about that all the time anytime i'm angry at someone i say you know nothing about the cinema and you're usually right <laughs> it's so, it's it's usually French directors I'm yelling it at Gaspar Noé those types. So to wrap things up, do any th- last thoughts on this great movie? Any thoughts on the alternative ending, which is available on the DVD of them so sitting in Alaska after Richard Chance has somehow survived his ordeal? It's it's amazingly great. I think I've heard Free can explain that he made it intentionally brain damagedly idiotic so that they wouldn't use it. I, I believe he's on the record saying, yeah, I did this idiotic ending because I knew the studio, which was MGM, wouldn't like the dark ending. So we filmed this moronic and they lived and got shipped up to Alaska. No, oh, you guys bundled up watching Robert Downey Sr. on TV, taking credit for their case. Yeah. And sort of just like look at, just looking all bored. Yeah. Like they're like the thing is about to happen to them. <laughs> and it's obviously terrible because he's shot in the face there's no surviving that to the shotgun i was also thinking it's cool how two of the all-time great shotgun to the head blasts willem defoe's in the scene this one and wild at heart two of the all-time oh, yeah. two of the cool. all-time great shotgun blast to the head That's um true. and maniac joe spinell is in cruising so is cruising. there some other yeah. connection here between great <laughs> shotgun blast to the head probably not um, no, that ending is obviously terrible. Uh, it is amazing to think that's a world in which we live in, in which Freakin has to pretend like he's going to do that ending to this movie. But this movie is dark. 
every time I watch it, it's shocking when Chance bites it. It really is fucking shocking every single every time. time. Yeah, it, it is. It's amazing. The final fuck up for him and then for Masters when he, you know, has Vukovic and he's ready to set him on fire and Vukovic manages to get the gun on him and kill him. You know, it's yeah, just the final, like these, it's going to catch up with these characters eventually and it finally does to their deaths and they're both equally shocking. It's just incredibly, yeah. incredibly and, and Masters, Defoe has a great, um oh oh no face when it's yeah. when things go wrong he has a real great like oops you know kind of i can't i can't believe it you know kind of face like not even yeah. i can't believe it but like oh no you know just like there's <laughs> it i'm at the end of the line face uh that's really a great mix of like shock and just like self-chastising disappointment have i ever told you about i i once almost choked on something i can't remember what it was it was something strange that shouldn't be possible to choke on like an orange like and i was like feeling like getting a little black and feeling the lack of oxygen and then it popped i've had that that happen too and then it popped free but i as i was like i'm gonna pass out now and i thought i this is the stupidest fucking way to die (laughs) i can't fucking this is the way i'm gonna die this is so fucking stupid you know, like, and that, and that would have been my last thought is like, oh, this is so fucking dumb, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, for masters, especially because when Vukovic comes in, he's like sitting down, like on the floor, just inferno all around him. And he just seems like this, you know, yeah, perfectly self-possessed guru who is like, you know, self-immolating himself in this, uh, in his factory. Yeah. And like, it's this like, you know, he's like, that's just what he was expecting was just to sit here and die in these flames. And then instead he has to get shot by this idiot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> comes in and interrupts him. He's definitely disappointed and definitely thinks it's a stupid way to die. Yeah. His, his, his self-immolation is interrupted by cousin Ira. <laughs> exactly. We'll talk about the final scene though, because we've alluded yeah. to it a little bit. So the final scene is very explicitly Vukovic shows up at the informant's house and is like, I'm taking over you're coming to me now. You're fucking me now. You're giving me all the information now. You're not running out of town. Got the leather coat and the shades. I'm Chance now, you know? I do yeah. love in the early scene after Chance has made made love to her when he's wearing the uh, leather jacket with no shirt, which I call the Clive Barker special. He's wearing the Clive <laughs> Barker special. Exactly. What leather jacket with no shirt um, yeah. and jeans. That's like Boom the most special. That's the, the, the freaking Clive Barker. You know what would be sexy? William Peterson in a leather jacket with no shirt. No, I think this is kind of gross. I don't like this. And, uh, but then Vukovic at the end shows up. It's weird because John Pankow is just, he's, he's too much of a wiener to pull it off. It's just when the casting can't get all the way there, he just doesn't have the threat in his eyes, the way that William Peterson does. And I think that one of the amazing things about William Peterson's performance in this film is how he has a threat in his eyes at all times you know he never lets up from that sort of uh the threat in his eyes it's it's always there and the weaker and the weaker you are the the stronger the threat is you know i do love that but you know again going back to just and and peterson hangs dong in that scene you got to appreciate that as well um you got to when when pregan talks about you know the idea of counterfeiting and at the end you know where uh, Bianca 
um, Master's girlfriend kind of becomes Masters, you know, goes off with the lady, you know, in his car. And then Vukovic shows up as a mirror scene, you know, has become Chance and has taken over his lady and everything like that. Um, it's kind of, it kind of brings that, you kind of appreciate it. Like, this is freaking having his moment just to say, this is what I'm trying to get, you know, this uh, idea of, you know, people taking on identities that's not really them, this kind of counterfeit idea. But yeah. really, always, always, I always forget about it until I see the movie and then I'm like, what the fuck? And rewind the part to see what I missed right after he says, you're working for me. And it cuts to her face and then it cuts to the shot of uh, Peterson right by the shades. And uh, and then it ends with her and the city behind her out the window. And the bridge the that, shot. that somebody should jump off of, maybe her. Yeah, I love yeah, it. Yeah, and then there's the shot of a truck driving up. Yeah. And then credits. Who's oh. in that truck? Why is that shot there? I've never noticed that. It totally throws me off. Well, because it, it looks... cuts into a, an LA montage for the credits so quickly that maybe it just feels like part of the montage to me. But it's not. It's its own shot. It's not in the city. It's like, you know, it looks like it's just behind her house. Yeah. And it almost feels like this is the shot of him arriving there that got misplaced somehow. Yeah. Weirdly. Or it's Peterson. It's just a weirdly placed shot. But it just makes me feel like, what's going on here? Like, Steve James. Suddenly, like, going back in time. It's, it's Steve James. He's, he survived. No, it's it's just like, are we going back in time here? Like, you know, is this another flashback to chance? It's just so strange that the shot is just sitting there inexplicably. And of course, Freakin says nothing about it on the commentary or anything like that, but it's always throws me off. And again, it's something I never remember until I watch the movie again. And then I'm like, oh yeah, what the fuck is this shot? Yeah. It's very weird. Yeah, very I guess weird. we should have mentioned too, like the counterfeit money in this movie famously drew the attention of the government, of the FBI and the Treasury Department that they created. Friedkin now admits that the statues of limitations, now that the statute of limitations is up, they created actual working counterfeit money on these counterfeit machines. They weren't one-sided bills like they were sort of allowed to have permission to do. They created actual fully counterfeit money, a million dollars worth, and uh, destroyed it at the end. Uh, some of it made it off set. The prop master's son got a hold of some of the money, which only had um, been printed on one side and tried to go to a convenience store to spend it. And they got caught immediately. And that drew the attention of the, of the government to them and sort of had the government <laughs> on their back for it. But they created real counterfeit money. The only, yeah, the they only... hired a real counter, a convicted counterfeiter who then yeah. was like working at like a print shop or something like that. And apparently just the, the paper and two other things, and they never say what the two other things are, uh, were the only things that weren't real about it. So it's very, it's very fascinating with that. This movie is definitely a movie that has a kind of realism to it. Naturalism to it that's that's very a texture that's just very hard to create that's that's very hard to fake and it and you can feel it throughout the film you know and i think that the counterfeit money the counterfeit money is real i think that that's the best phrase you could say about to live and die in la money money is very hard to fake <laughs> just because i don't know what it is doesn't mean i'm lying um we should do it we should do a strange brew episode sometime yeah so sure. this movie, I love it. I live it. I watch this movie probably once a year. It's not a movie that I worry about wearing out for some reason. Um, it's yeah, it's great, it's... man. I've never seen it on the big screen. I'd love to sometime. Yeah, and it's uh, so great on the big screen. And it's just, it works, man. 
it it's a movie that plays it really plays it does it's great and again i'm just gonna say one last time i'm so glad people know this movie now i'm so glad you know even when it came out on dvd for the first time it felt like holy shit yeah i can't believe it i can't believe i don't have to watch this old stolen copy of fricks (laughs) (laughs) no no i didn't have that copy but no no i it was just uh, it was a great day when it finally came out. So I could watch it whenever I wanted. This like the way it was meant to be seen. It's just terrific. Great yeah, fucking movie. Absolutely, absolutely. And I don't feel possessive of it at all. Like, oh, I knew about this movie when you were still doing your <laughs> Wilford Brimley movie goofs on it. You know, like I I don't feel possessive about it. I feel like it's a movie that feels really good as the as the appreciation of it grows you know it feels yeah. like uh, i don't want it to be a cult movie i want it to be a consensus classic <laughs> yeah no exactly the kind of movie when someone says oh i just watched to live and die in la it's great you're like of course it's great of course yeah Doesn't everyone th- think that already i thought everyone knew that <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely anything else we need to talk about i feel like we could keep going uh continually perpetually on to live and die in LA like uh, any but, of these episodes where we talk about these movies we love I could talk forever we didn't even get to Steve James the great late great Steve James yeah he's phenomenal in it I mean we mentioned him enough I guess we didn't explain who Steve James is and why we love him but if you don't know read a book okay <laughs> it's called go to a library he's not the director of hoop dreams okay <laughs> of stevie it's not the director of stevie um have a good night everybody oh subscribe to our patreon please our patreon if you subscribe to our patreon you get monthly bonuses you get uh early access to every single episode patreon subscribers premium subscribers get episodes a week early we put up all kinds of stuff from commentary tracks to short critical videos to holiday special episodes to uh our five from the fire series which is a patreon exclusive and we use that money from patreon to pay our authors that's really what why we want you to subscribe is we want to be able to publish more things on our website and we refuse to publish new things without paying authors their fair share and what they're owed for their work so subscribe to the patreon we give you as much as we can in return and you're doing a lot of great stuff to support independent writers who are heavily exploited in the world you would be shocked if you found out how little fucking money even something like the new yorker uh pays a freelance writer let alone all these other film sites that are out there pick your favorite one that you really like they're paying their writers jack shit so we can't do that so subscribe the patreon to to fight back against an exploitative business model we do really work hard to you know put out good stuff that hopefully you'll enjoy and i'm just going to throw out there if you want to join in the $1,000 tier, I will call you and describe the plot of any William Friedkin movie. Jade, The Hunted, anyone, you tell me. I will call you and tell you what happens in that movie. Yes, for $1,000, I will sit there and listen to John Cribbs describe <laughs> the plot of any William Friedkin movie and chime in with, mm-hmm, yeah, that's right. That's what happens next, continually. Or, or I won't. You can pay me that $1,000 to stay away just so long as you help us support the writers for real. And um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, We don't push merch. We don't have any uh, ads ever. 
Um, we just want to make this program free and not for sale. Not for sale, but we're taking payment. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you for listening. And if you don't ever give us a dollar, still thank you for listening. Uh, that's it. That's the closest now. That's the closest we're ever going to have to like a tag sign off thing, right? Didn't we decide on something amazing for this? This one specifically? For just in general for the show. Chris, you're working for me now. That's how we're going to end this one. <laughs> uh, cut to me contemplating suicide.